0: Welcome to episode number 159 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor, and I also help out with social media for the Northern Miner. And we have a pretty, I would say, revelatory episode on the post briex life of John Felderhoff. I interview our acting editor-in-chief and senior reporter, Trish Saywell, about her experiences visiting the Philippines for three days in 2012 to talk to John Felderhoff. And John Felderhoff was the chief geologist for Briex Minerals, which was, as Trish says in the interview, arguably the biggest scandal in the history of the mining industry. It's right up there, if it's not. And she talked to John Felderhoff about his life after Briex and about the whole experience, and uh, she got to know him quite a bit. So John Felderhoff passed away last week at the age of 79 so we thought we would take this opportunity to discuss Felderhoff and just Trisha's reflections on his life and the whole Briex situation and also the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame has announced their annual dinner and induction ceremony they have a tweet out that individual seats and full table tickets are available for the 32nd ceremony on January 9th 2020 You can find them at mininghalloffame.ca slash annual dash ceremony. Or just go to the mininghalloffame.ca website, and you can just click on annual ceremony there. So there are limited tickets, and there are also sponsorships available. The Northern Miner is one of the founding members of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, and so I've been there. It's a very special event. It's a heartwarming sort of event, and, you know, if you're in mining, can't think of a better place to park yourself than the Mining Hall of Fame, as far as to learn about the industry, to meet interesting people. It's the Hall of Fame, so... So check that out. Also, uh, just uh, we have our videos from the Progressive Mind Forum are now available. Simply go to northernminer.com and click on videos and you will see all our videos from the Progressive Mind Forum. So that is also available. If you want to find us online... Visit northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Northern on Instagram, at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And turning to the website, court rejects HUD Bay motion to reconsider Rosemont. And last week, U.S. District Court Judge James Soto said there is no basis to reconsider the earlier court ruling that challenged and overturned the U.S. Forest Service approval of the project. For those that don't know, uh, the U.S. Forest services approved Rosemont and then a court ruling overturned it and we'll get into the history of this project a little bit but if you have been following the history they had finally got all their permitting together and it's taken years and there was a lot of uh, questions about it but it finally happened. And then a court ruled earlier this year that the project could not go ahead. So HUD Bay had appealed this, or they had filed a motion to reconsider, to be specific. And it looks like that appeal or that motion was rejected. And we have Hudbay's director of investor relations, Candice Brula, and she says, "quote This ruling confirms the court continues to inappropriately assume the responsibility of the regulators, misrepresenting current mining laws and regulations that govern mining activities on public lands throughout Arizona." and the United States, she said in an email response to questions from the Northern Miner. Hudbay did not issue a press release on the court's denial of the motion for reconsideration. Brulé goes on to say, we will continue our work to appeal the decision as we evaluate the next steps for the project. The U.S. Forest Service issued its decision in June 2017 after a process that took 10 years involving 17 cooperative agencies at various levels of government, 16 hearings, over 1,000 studies, and 245 days of public comment, resulting in more than 36,000 comments. Quote, from Brule, Hud Bay believed the court went beyond its authority by assessing the validity of Rosemont's mining claims. Brule said of the court's initial ruling in July, quote, as such, we field a motion to request that the court amend the judgment and remand Rosemont's final record of decision to the Forest Service, for additional investigation or explanation while leaving the FEIS in place during this time. Part of the issue in contention here is that there are public lands that are directly adjacent to the mine that the mine needs to use for its waste rock, state-of-the-art tailings facility, and other support facilities. This is where a lot of the tension lies. The company says the use of public lands to support mining operations from valid mineral claims is a practice that has been adopted by other mines throughout the country and is consistent with the regulations set out by agencies that monitor and regulate these activities. This is a fairly significant project, in case you think this is just some small junior mining project. It says in the article, If built, Rosemont would be the third largest copper mine in the U.S., counting for 10% of the country's annual copper production. Over a projected 19-year life, Rosemont is expected to produce 127,000 tons of copper annually. And there's another significant wrinkle to this whole story. HUD Bay, they acquired Augusta Resource in a hostile takeover in September 2014. So they had been pursuing this project aggressively. So it's the guys at Augusta, they must just be sitting back and saying, thank God HUD Bay pursued this because now it's turning into a pretty big problem. I mean, for those longtime readers of the Northern Miner, you'll be familiar with Rosemont. It's been in the news flow for 15 years. Now, if you do a search on Rosemont in the Northern Miner directory, uh, you're going to find stories that date back to 2005. And what do we have here? June 3rd, 2005, Augusta buys Rosemont copper moly deposit. 2005, Augusta cuts wide copper. And I'm just sort of scanning these here. Augusta advances Rosemont, this is 2008. Augusta updates Rosemont feasibility, this is 2009. Augusta raises $25 million, 2009. Augusta and Silver Wheaton Inc. streaming deal for Rosemont, that's 2010. Augusta secures $176 million for Rosemont in 2010. Augusta moves closer to decision on Rosemont in 2011. 2012, Augusta inches forward, and I'm just browsing the headlines here. Rosemont will cost more, Augusta says. Augusta takes it to the next level, 2014, and then in May 2014, Hud Bay extends hostile bid for Augusta. Moles-Rosemont delay. June 2014, Wildcat spotting delays Augusta's permit. Hud Bay receives final permit for Rosemont construction in March 2019. And then August 2nd, we have U.S. court rules against Hud Bay's Rosemont. So that's the history of that mine. It doesn't look too good, frankly, for Hud Bay. If the court first rules against you and then they deny the motion to reconsider, I think you're starting to run out of options at that point. But They feel like they can continue an appeal, so they are going to, so we'll keep you updated on that situation. Something tells me that's not the last we've heard of Rosemont. Next up, we have a gold project that is being developed in Nova Scotia. Anaconda Boost Resource at Goldboro in Nova Scotia. Kevin Bullock, Anaconda's president and CEO, says the global resource of almost 1.4 million ounces of gold makes Goldboro, quote, the largest single deposit in the province. A 2018 preliminary economic assessment forecasts a mine life of just under nine years. The study estimates life of mine production of 375,931 ounces of gold, or 41,000 ounces of gold per year, at all-in sustaining costs of $640 per ounce. So it is definitely on the lower cost side of a gold mine. Okay, Anaconda plans to complete the feasibility study before year-end. Permitting is underway and is expected to be completed in the first half of next year. Bullock says, quote, pending permits and the feasibility, we should be able to break ground mid-next year. Noting that the construction of the processing plant and associated infrastructure of the open pit mine will take about 14 months. It's always interesting when you get a gold project out of the Maritimes there, the Canadian Maritimes. And we also have an analyst, uh, Michael Curran at Beacon Securities, has a buy rating on the company with a 12-month target price of 90 cents per share. Quote, we consider Anaconda Mining to be an attractive investment for the successful delivery of production growth over the next few years. And unsurprisingly, Curran regards Nova Scotia and Newfoundland as among the lower risk jurisdictions in the mining industry. At press time, Anaconda is trading at 20 cents per share with a 52-week trading range of 18 cents to 35.5 cents. So that 90 cents target by Michael Curran is pretty dramatic. So interesting to hear out of Nova Scotia. And also on the website, we have a new story from Tom Party out of Chile. Chilean turmoil as socioeconomic tensions boil over. The worst unrest in Chile in a generation threatens to overturn assumptions about one of South America's most stable countries and the world's leading producer of copper. You might remember, it was only like two or three episodes ago where we were talking about Ecuador And the government being basically run out of town. Now we have Chile, which has been going on for most of October now. And here we are into November. That's going, I mean, I did a search actually on Latin American protests, and The Guardian has a piece where they're talking about uh, you have Chile, you have Ecuador, you have Haiti, where there are protesters. This Latin American thing really seems to be gaining speed. And putting on my personal analyst hat, if I had to put it all together, I see. I, th- I think. I think there's no avoiding it. This is economic inequality plus multiplied by information distribution so people know through their phones and through the internet how other people are living you could almost say there's a social media side to this whole thing this is the tempting interpretation isn't it when you're trying to connect all the dots here and you say what is the common ground here what are the common themes and to me if you start going big picture and there's always a risk in generalizing like this because you miss the particularities and Sometimes you miss part of the reality by generalizing, but gosh, it's tempting when you look at this to say economics times information equal a whole bunch of social unrest. Anyways, continuing, all it took was a four-cent rise in the peak hour fares on the San Diego metro on October 6th, but by October 18th, a week of mass fare jumping by high school and university students had descended into widespread vandalism and pitched battles with riot police. The scenes were apocalyptic, with dozens of metro stations and buses set alight, mobs looting supermarkets, and the headquarters of the country's largest electricity company in flames. With police apparently overwhelmed, Chile's center right president Sebastian Piñera decreed a state of emergency, imposing a curfew and sending troops into Santiago for the first time since its return to democracy in 1990. By then, however, it was too late. Tens of thousands of Chileans had taken to the streets banging saucepans in protest over the heavy handed clampdown and a growing list of complaints from low pensions and rising living costs to the poor state of public hospitals and schools. In almost two weeks of protests, more than 20 people have died. Hundreds more are injured, many blinded by rubber bullets, and thousands have been arrested. I mean, this has gotten serious enough where, of course, Chile cancelled their Apex Summit. It's interesting. I mean, if we look at the Ecuador story, uh, analysts are basically saying, bump in the road. Let's see what the people are saying about what's going on in Chile. Uh, Here, as a party continues, Chileans and foreigners alike are shocked at how quickly South America's wealthiest and most stable economy has been turned upside down. We have Don Lindsay, CEO and president of Tech Resources. Quote, I think until a week ago... Chile was still thought of as probably the leading country in South America in which to invest. At this point, there's nothing to change our perspective. So... Calm and patience from Don Lindsay. We have Alex Black, CEO of Rio2. People who are educated and know Chile pretty well see this as an anomaly. The unrest has not affected Rio2's plans to advance its Phoenix Gold project in northern Chile's Maricunga belt. No investors had contacted the company to inquire about the unrest, he said. And so the president has replied, President Pinera. Has uh, launched several proposals, including higher basic pensions, a state supported minimum income, cuts in electricity tariffs, and higher taxes for the wealthy, which was quickly dismissed as inadequate by the opposition. Business leaders believe higher taxes look inevitable as the government strives to fulfill social demands. And we have a quote from the head of Chile's top business organization, CPC. Quote, we know that we're going to have to stick our hands in our pockets and that it's going to hurt. Well, so that's Chile. So another report from Latin America... Also on the website, don't miss the fireside chat with Kirkland Lake Gold's Tony McCook, and that was done by the northern miners' Anthony Vaccaro. We're, we're going to feature that in an upcoming episode, so I don't want to spoil too much on that, but we do have a transcript online, so feel free to check that out. And we also have a story on Advantage lithium, which just completed a study on its Kochari project in Argentina, and also Newmont Gold Corp has begun commercial production at its Quetcher main project which is at its Yanacocha gold mine in Peru that is on the website so tons going on here with that let's turn to metal prices At metal prices, we go to our friends at infomine.com. And if you ever want to find these prices, simply put in metal prices, infomine, and the first result in Google will be this page. And so on November 5th, gold is at $1,503.66 per ounce, so back above $1,500 and about $10 higher than last week silver is above $18 at $18.04 that's 24 cents higher than last week platinum is also higher at $934 and that is above last week's $918.15 palladium continues to be high uh, but not quite as high as last week but it's at $1,780 even and Last week was at $1,797.63. So it's down $17. But if you look at the chart, it looks like it's maybe catching its breath. But I mean, so let's see. I mean, the, we'll see what's going on with palladium. It's been an exciting move higher. So a little bit of a break. Let's see if it sticks. And also, we have our industrial metals. On November 1st, we have a quote of copper at $2.65 and that's two cents lower than last week. We have aluminum at 80 cents, that's two cents higher. Lead is at 99 cents, which is three cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $7.60, which is six cents lower than last week. Tin is at $7.52, that's one cent lower. Cobalt is at $16.10 for the fourth week in a row. And zinc is also at $1.15, which is the same as last week. Coming up, we have the Northern Miner, Senior Reporter, and Acting Editor-in-Chief, Trish Saywell. And she discusses the life of John Felderhoff after Briex. Trish had written a big story and spent three days with Felderhoff in the Philippines in 2012. So she's going to talk to us just about her thoughts on the story. She got to know his lawyer. And it was a significant chapter in Canadian mining and, frankly, in international mining and it had a big impact on the, on the financial side. The mining went into a bear market and uh, there were increased regulations on juniors that were imposed after that. So it was a major moment in the history of Canadian mining. David Walsh was CEO of BreX and he died in June 1998, only a, a year after it went bankrupt at the age of 52 of an apparent brain aneurysm in the Bahamas and geologist Michael de Guzman was blamed for the salting of the gold core samples and, uh, he died after falling out of a helicopter but there's a lot of ambiguity surrounding that. That's discussed in this interview and uh, that was in 1996. It's one of the craziest stories really in this in the junior mining industry, probably in the junior mining industry, so that's why we are giving it the special attention and if you want to read more on it just go to the bottom of our webpage northernminer.com. I'm going to leave the stories up for another few days. We have a little special focus on Briex and you can see some of the history of this troubled company and yeah if you do a search or just tap on the tag you're going to see dozens of stories on Briex. So with that let's go to our interview uh, with Trish Saywell on John Felderhoff. Joining me today is Acting Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell of the Northern Miner, and Trish met John Felderhoff, so we thought it would be nice if we just talked a little bit about uh, John Felderhoff. He's a central figure in the Brix Minerals scandal in the late 90s, and so yeah, Trish, uh, tell us about meeting John Felderhoff.
1: Yeah, thanks, Adrian. I uh, I first met him in 2010 at PDAC and we met and you know had brief introduction and then for the next year and a half I would say I was emailing him and trying to get him to agree to do an interview with me and he finally agreed and so I went to the Philippines where he was living with his third wife in June of uh, 2012 and I published the story in January of 2013 I should mention, though, that two Northern Miner uh, writers and editors actually wrote the definitive book on the BRIEX scandal in 1997. Vivian Danielson and Jim White, who used to work at the Northern Miner, wrote a book called BRIEX Gold Today, Gone Tomorrow, Anatomy of the Busang Swindle. So so I, I sort of picked up the story after that and went there and spent about three days and four nights with him in the Philippines.
0: At PDAC, was he, what was he doing at PDAC? Like, how did you even, like, could you recognize him based on just photos you saw on the news? Did you know him before? Like, where, what was he doing at PDAC?
1: Actually, Adrian, I don't I don't remember uh, what he was doing there. I think it had to do with his legal challenges, and I got to him through his lawyer in Toronto, Joe Groya, who defended him in all of the various uh, lawsuits that he was involved in. Just to recap, you know, John was never charged with a criminal offence, but he was charged with eight counts of violating Ontario securities laws, uh, but he was acquitted of everything in, in 2007.
0: On that point, when you look at his interviews and you look at, say, that article you wrote, he maintained his innocence quite vehemently, it appeared to me. He was acquitted. And I I think you're absolutely right to bring up that point, because I think people just say Brieck's central figure, he must be guilty. And the reality is, is he was acquitted.
1: That is correct. But as his lawyer, Joe Groya told me, you know, it ruined the rest of his life. He was as much a victim as anyone else and probably the biggest victim of BRIEX. So that's a quote from Joe Groya, who incidentally was uh, later uh, convicted in 2012 by the Law Society of Upper Canada, who Jeez. said he was uncivil during the trial. And I think he was fined an enormous amount of money. But Joe to this day says uh, his lawyering on the Felderhoff case was the best uh, he ever did in his career and he would do it all over again. But to, to on that point, too, I mean, Felderoff was broke and uh, Joe did a lot of the work pro bono at the end. I think Felderoff owed him about two million bucks. That was what I was told in 2012. I don't know whether that was ever paid. I doubt it. Because when I visited Felderoff in the Philippines, I mean, it was clear that they didn't have a lot of money.
0: Yeah, and it definitely clear. It it seemed like uh, looking at that article that he had adopted kind of a... Uh, New philosophy of life that was kind of post career, like it was almost a kind of retirement in the Philippines, living the simple life. I think they ran a convenience store, if I remember the story right, or a laundromat or something like that. And I think as the article and says, like he couldn't work with anybody else; nobody wanted to touch him.
1: Yeah, that's right. His career was over. Um, just to your point, I mean, I would say you know probably most people in this industry still think he's guilty. I'm one of the few people I think that. Doesn't think that uh, Joe doesn't think that there are maybe one or
0: two a few other people who don't. I, but I don't. I, 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 I don't get I, that impression either, frankly. Just from looking at the narrative, I don't get the impression that he's. But who knows? You know. But yeah. Sorry. Continue. Continue.
1: Well, I mean, he was clearly tormented by this. He took his career very seriously. And before BRIACS, he'd actually made uh, several fairly well-known discoveries. He mm. and uh, an Australian geologist, Doug Fishbourne, were credited with finding Octeti, I believe, in Papua New Guinea. And then he found a few other deposits in Indonesia before BRIACS. So he had a career. He took it very, very seriously. And so this ruined his career. And, and when I met him, he was bitter. Uh, he said mm. the first Four years after Briex, he just was angry and bitter, and uh, his second wife, Ingrid, an Australian woman who, they lived together in the Cayman Islands, uh, she divorced him. And, uh, you know, he moved then at that point in 2000 to, the, to Indonesia, to the island of Bali, where he met his third wife, actually, a Filipina And he said those four years were very, very tough. And he started up a plant export business from Bali with uh, one of his daughters from one of his previous marriages, exporting uh, tropical house plants to Australia and other parts of the world. But then when he met Maria, who's a lovely woman in the Philippines, she was there working with her aunt who had a laundromat, I think. They moved back to the Philippines together because her four children were still there in the Philippines, so they want, she wanted to be close to them. When they first got back, they had no money, so they ended up in a squatter village that one of her uncles owned, and I saw it. It was basically a shack with a you know, mud floor and, and very basic by the sea. And then eventually they, they ended up getting a house. Uh, well, a house, it was like a two-story sort of structure. You, they're quite common in Asia where the first floor is kind of opens to the street. And they had a couple of plastic tables outside where they turned it into a restaurant. And they had a convenience store. And then right next door to the house, some of her relatives were selling rice. So it was a, you know, it was a pretty meager uh, existence, uh, and they worked hard. You know, they'd get up at four in the morning and and start cooking so they could serve lunch at this little restaurant. And they rented out the roof of their house uh, to a to a business that used it for a telecommunications tower or something. But so yeah, it was a very meager existence, uh, and and he was bitter. And when I met him, he was actually in the process of writing his memoir, and he was right at the point where he had reached the Brex chapter. So. He was quite
0: distraught, uh, obviously. It sounds like he, like when you say bitter, it almost surprises me, I guess, because when you look at the article and you see the picture, you almost think that he had moved on and he had sort of put it behind him. How could you tell he was bitter? Was he just not that happy? Like, was he kind of depressed when he talked to you? Did he appear depressed? Or was it more just because of what he was saying?
1: Well, you know, don't forget, I spent three days with him with my tape recorder and, and, you know, asking him all these questions about Brieck. So I was, you know, making him relive all of this stuff. And so he was, but he was also, as I said, writing that particular chapter in his memoir. So I think that just the combination, I, I wouldn't say he was happy. I think he was, you know, can you imagine if you, you know, you... Spent your life building up a career and then it all evaporated overnight and you know if in fact he's not guilty uh, that you know that nearly destroyed him but you know he was trying to make the best of it basically and uh he and maria had adopted uh, maria's granddaughter and he spent a lot of time with this young girl named uh, ella i think that brought him joy he said M- maria was a, a wonderful woman and so he was grateful that he would married her and you know he wanted to be remembered he told me as someone who never gives up you know even if you've been a multi-millionaire twice in your life he said you have to start from scratch all over again you never give up you keep going you keep your sense of humor and that's important i didn't see much of a sense of humor when i was there Mm -hmm. but again you know that was when he was reliving it all i mean you know he was a chain smoker Uh, i think he he drank probably a bit too much uh and you know he was a bit gruff but you know he didn't know me that well and uh You know, he he was gracious. uh, You know, I spent all day with him. And then at night they would drop me off at a little crappy hotel near where they lived. And I would I would stay up till about three in the morning because he let me read the chapters of his memoir that he'd written. But he wouldn't let me photocopy them or take them with me. So I had to stay up at night to just sort of take notes on his life story, basically. So uh, it was an interesting three days, to say the least.
0: Did he ever release that memoir?
1: You know, I don't know. He was sending chapters to his niece in Holland who was editing it for him. I, I did try and contact him on several occasions, you know, since then. Uh, and sometimes he responds, sometimes he didn't. So I haven't heard from him in, in many years. I, I don't know if he finished it or not. I, actually, I'd like to get in touch with Joe and just see because I know Joe kept in touch with him more closely.
0: Do you have contact with other members of the former Brix Minerals or No uh, No?
1: No, but he told me that so if we get to the case itself, I mean he Mike Guzman, he was the, the head geologist on the project. He was the one whose body allegedly fell out of the helicopter. Right. To this to this day, John Felderoff would say he was he was innocent. He was not involved whatsoever. Now a lot of people or I'd say most really? people think Think de Guzman was responsible, but John, at least in 2012 when I was there, disagreed vehemently, and and that's where he actually disagreed with Joe Groya, his lawyer, who who believes that de Guzman is still alive and living in the Philippines somewhere. But John was convinced that Mike had nothing to do with it. But he said it took him 15 years to figure out how the salting exactly was done, and he said it was using gravity concentrate, and he says. He wouldn't let me name the uh, the people that he thought were responsible for it. And so I'm going to honor that now. But, you know, there were other people working on the project, including Cesar Pouspos, uh, a geologist and a metallurgist called uh, Jerry Allo and others. So, uh, you know, you can come to your own conclusions. Yeah.
0: I wasn't aware that the body was never found. Of, no, no, uh, no, no, no.
1: The body was found. A body was found. But... Uh, uh, but uh, Joe Groya doesn't, at least Thanks. as I understand it from my interview with him many years ago, he didn't think that, that was his body and that he's still alive.
0: Amazing. I mean, this yeah. story just gets, it's pretty unbelievable for the junior mining space. I mean, this is. Uh...
1: Yeah, I mean, six billion dollars of shareholder value were, were destroyed and it changed the way regulations were you know brought about in the in the industry after that that was a watershed moment for mining but just to get back to to cesar and jerry Allo, i mean I, when i asked john if i could track them down or if he knew where they lived he said no but he knew they were in the philippines somewhere and i said well i really want to find them he said yeah don't it, uh, it's it's be dangerous
0: <laughs> so are, are so. they still working in mining do you know or oh
1: i don't still... think so i don't think so
0: okay I and think... they were they were on the BreX team
1: yes yes Yeah, because when I met John, he was about 72. And I believe he was 79 when he died. So yeah. But just one other thing, you know, you have to understand something about John Felderoff. I mean, he he was the fifth of 12 kids grew up in Holland. His father was a, a well known and respected physician. And they came to Canada when John was about 12, didn't speak a word of English. His family arrived in Nova Scotia, but then he and his younger brother, I think, were shipped off to uh, relatives in Ontario who had a farm and no running water. And John couldn't speak a word of English. And he did chores on the farm for the first year until he was finally enrolled in, in a local school. And then one day out of the blue, his father shows up to take them back to Nova Scotia, at which point his life sort of starts and he goes to high school and becomes a good student and, and, and you know. So, I mean, his w- one of the things about the, um, the conditions of my interview with him was that I wouldn't talk about his family's life in Holland or his siblings or name any of his kids. That was one of the conditions. Uh, the other condition was that I couldn't say where he lived, couldn't take uh, a picture of the house because one of the things he was really worried about were uh, kidnappers in the Philippines. He said, you know, even right. though he wasn't a wealthy man, you know, the optics were that he had a house and, and a family and a and, you know, small businesses. So he was very, very concerned about his uh, his adopted daughter, Ella, her safety, because he was worried right. About so John, you know, maintained his innocent, in, innocence to the very end. And um, he used he an analogy that I thought was pretty appropriate. He said, you know, you can be a bank manager, but your branch can get Robbed and, and sort of, you know, he said, you know, he would right. visit, he had right. four projects on the go in Indonesia at that time. And so he'd sort of split his time between each project. Maybe he'd visit each one a, once every couple of months. And he was in Jakarta doing a lot of the sort of permitting stuff. And, you know, he, he wasn't there every day. Even though people say there were a lot of red flags, uh, everyone else in the world was duped. I, I don't know. I think you have to consider that as well.
0: I guess he would argue he saw the results like everybody else and assumed that they were true. Mm-hmm. and i assume he sold stock at some point yeah uh, probably when the stock was going crazy high and then later when it crashed that's probably when these charges were and did he speak directly about those charges or did he was it just i'm acquitted and like did he talk about that at all
1: he didn't talk about that much i know i did press him for details about his finances. Uh, but I got more information from Joe, actually. As I understand it, I, I'm I'm basing this on an interview I did with Joe quite a long time ago, but he said about $84 million in proceeds from the sale by Felderoff of brick stock took place between April and September of 1996 he spent about $26 million exercising some options right before it all blew up. So, you know, you subtract 26 from 84, and then he spent 20 million on legal fees. He put everything, all of his property, at least, in Ingrid's name, his second wife's name. And she still, I believe, lives in the Cayman Islands. And I think she said she was writing a own book about it, but I don't know whatever, you know, what happened with that. And, and again, he was broke, and he said he didn't have any money left. So, you know, yes, he cashed in some stock, but it's all gone. It looks like.
0: Yeah, amazingly. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of money, especially in the 90s. Did you ever watch the movie?
1: I watched Gold with you. Mean the one with Matthew yeah. McConaughey? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, did you? Do you have yeah, anything on that?
1: It was. It was okay. It was okay. But actually, I. I. I there is another thing I should mention. So when I was yeah, after ahead. I met with uh, with John, I got an email from a guy in Hollywood, a, a producer called Scott Rosenfeld. And he was trying to do a film as well. Um, And he sent me his script, and he actually hired John as his technical advisor. But I don't think that film was ever made, and I haven't heard from Scott since, so... uh I think when the gold film came out, he may have dropped this one. I don't know. He was trying to raise money and it went anywhere as far as I know.
0: From your vantage point, do you have any thoughts on what the impact of Briex was?
1: It ruined a lot of people's lives. Some people, you know, lost everything. Very significant impact. And people still talk about it. It was, you know, it was the biggest scandal in mining. I think it is to this day
0: it's definitely infamous is there anything else you want to add
1: I have to say that I would still love to go back to the Philippines and track down uh (laughs) Cesar and Jerry Allo and uh see what they have to say about it but I don't know if I'll be able to do that
0: it's pretty amazing you got that one-on-one interview just actually one last question on that was it hard to get that interview like you you went through his lawyer like he was pretty reluctant wasn't he
1: yeah, no, he was, and, and I don't blame him. I mean, I he did meet me at PDAC that one time in, in 2010, and then I I was pretty dogged in, in emailing him and trying to convince him that I, w- I just wanted to hear his side of the story and that I would honor his any conditions he had, uh, right. which I did, and, uh, you know eventually he he agreed, and and to his credit, I think. And I I think the story had to be written, and I'm just glad that I had a chance to do it.
0: Okay, great. And uh, for all our listeners, uh, the story is called John Felderhoff's Life After Briex. It's a very comprehensive story, basically about what we're talking about here today. So And that's by Trish Saywell, our acting editor-in-chief and senior reporter at the Northern Minor. So, Trish, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us.
1: You bet. Thanks, Adrian.
0: Another angle on this industry, a more human side. It's almost like a Greek tragedy, this story somewhat. I mean, not just for John Felderhoff, but for the investors as well. Let's not forget them either, because these are the people who are ultimately burned. One of the great things about the mining industry is it has a lot of the big themes of chasing after glory. You see it in these movies like Treasure of the Sierra Madre with Humphrey Bogart. When a gold bull market happens, you see the intoxication people literally have from all of a sudden they're making tons of money. There's a lot of drama in this industry and it's important to recognize. I think sometimes when you go to these conferences, people are saying how the mining industry needs to rebrand itself. And that's probably true in a certain way. I guess all I'm saying is there's a lot to work with here. There's a real romantic side to the whole mining industry. And maybe that's one way that rebrand can happen. Until next week, thank you for joining us once again and take care.